We have uh, spent the last four weeks, um, if you've been with us, of course, you will know we spent the last four weeks celebrating the season of Advent by looking at four foundational truths. Um, so sorry, let me get this okay. By looking at four foundational truths that are meant to characterize the Christian life from the season of Advent. And if you're with us, of course, you know that those themes, we began with joy, then we looked at the, the theme of love, then peace, and then, of course, last week, we looked at hope. Together, they're this kind of symbiotic nature of both intertwined, one almost causing and or resulting from the other. Um, but as they work together, they define the life between the advents of Jesus' first coming. This is what the purpose of them of they were, is to define the life uh, between these advents, this inter-advental period of which we find ourselves today, between the incarnation of Jesus all those many, many years ago, and of course, his second return of which we are waiting for today. And so those are not just things that we hope for, in the sense we do, but I think we need to take it a step further and remember that they are truths, characteristics to be expected that we can lay hold of, that we can experience, that we can actually live in the sense, again, of joy, of peace, of love, and of hope. They're characteristic in that they're meant to be obtained by us, experienced, but they were meant, never meant to just stop there. And this is the emphasis as I thought about it this morning. Really what I want to do is I just want to take them and I, I don't want to put a period or a full stop on the end of, of this Advent season, but more so... Uh, maybe an ellipsis would be more right, just the dot, dot, dot. What comes now? And really what I want to look at this morning is the outward expression, the byproducts or the fruit of these four truths evident in our lives. Because as we know, it doesn't just stop with the personal application of truth because the gospel is always outward-facing, outward-focused, and moving towards others, not just ourselves. Would you agree with that statement? Please do. So often we concentrate on the personal and the internal significance of truth as it pertains to our life. What it means for us, how it affects us, how it affects the way that we think, and those are all good things, but we can never lose sight of the fact that the gospel is a going, ascending message, an outward-facing message. And it's so easy to forget that sometimes because the reality is, is we want to grow. We want to mature. We want to be changed. That is the process of the Christian life. But as I thought about this, and I, and I wanted to just continue today in this theme of Advent, but again, let's look at the movement beyond ourselves and to the world in which we've been called. So my aim today is to tie together these last four themes, and set the stage for this coming year for 2020. By looking for the byproducts or the external fruit of each of these and in so doing set our sights higher and further and provide a glimpse into the realm which I believe the Lord is calling this church to step in faith into. I believe that 2020, I genuinely believe this, you guys, is going to be a significant year for this faith community. The things that we have in our hearts as elders, the things that we're positioning ourselves in, as most of you know if you're a part of this community, 
we, we have, we're making a transition from our iteration of our communitas into something new, which again, I believe is all just part and parcel with what God is doing in us as a faith community. And so I really see this as we come to the end of 2019 and we begin to look towards 2020. I sat with a pastor about two weeks ago and he was talking about this upcoming year and, um, and he was so clever. He was like, it's the year of 2020, of clear, clear vision. You know, I was going, wow, I wish I would have thought of that. I don't have anything catchy like that for us this morning. Instead, we're just going to move in what we believe the, the Lord by His Spirit is leading us into, and we'll trust in that. So I want to use this morning the text in Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read it. We've read it together. We've been studying through 2019 through the Gospel of Matthew. So we actually looked at this. We're not going to study the passage but again, I want to use it as this kind of jumping point for this morning, all right? So turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to read these two verses. This, of course, is encapsulated in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says this in verse 14, this being the literal words of Jesus Christ. You are the light of the world, he says. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, verse 16, let your light shine before others. I want you to notice the possession of that. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So as I said, we study this as we studied Matthew what I want to take from it is just the basic intent that Jesus had when he spoke to these people. Remember, he was not yet. He had called, I think at this time he had called four of the disciples of what would be 12. So he's not even talking yet to the complete 12, but he's addressing again the Beatitudes is set of the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to multitudes. He's speaking to those he's called, but he's also speaking to levels of multitudes within this. And so he's setting for them an expectation. He's already laying the foundation of the nature of the kingdom of God, which he was establishing on earth. And this is the nature of the collected people, as, we, as Dean led us into, that he's always been about calling a people. And so Jesus is describing here the characterization of his people on earth, that they would be the light. And, and we remember, especially within the season, John's words in John chapter 1, in the Gospel of John, that he was the light, and the light came into the world. But here Jesus is saying that, yes, I am the light, but now you would be the light. And that's so integral and important to the Christian faith that we have been called to be light. His church would be the light, not just us as individuals. And that light would illuminate truth, right? Right? It illuminates what is true. Truth is so easily seen when it's held against the backdrop of error. We are called to be truth illuminators to all that are in the world, which would one day be above, this kingdom would be above all the ways of the earth. This light would be above the city set on a hill, which couldn't be, couldn't be uh, stopped, nor could it be ravaged by the places of the earth or the kingdoms of the earth or the processes of the earth set above, it's set apart, it's set aside from the ways. And its lamp would be comprised of many individual lamps who together would propel this illumination into the outer extents of darkness. But, as is the case, our present cultural moment has done a rather remarkable job in constructing untruths. 
and deceiving the hearts of many in an attempt to counteract this shining light that we're called to. Tricking hearts and minds of many countless individuals, the world holds things that are counterfeit, and we have been called to be authentic illuminators, authentic light shiners. To this point, and this is really the, what got me thinking this week about what I wanted to speak on this morning. I've been reading a book by a gentleman, and I would like to just give you some very thought-provoking, a couple of quotes that he says as we look today into these byproducts or the fruit of the advental characteristics in our life. The gentleman's name is Mark Sayers, and the book is called The Reappearing Church. And let me just read this to you. He's, he asked this question. He says this, What if this secular moment was only a crisis if we ignore God's call for renewal? Think about that statement for a moment. What if we reframe this as brilliantly good news? He's speaking of, again, the cultural moment that we are experiencing this rise and swell of secularism, humanism, hedonism, all of the things that create sometimes a downtrodden heart in the life of a believer because of the looming opposition that we face. But he says this, what if it's only a crisis because we as the church see it as such. We create it as a crisis. The implication is that we, we, us, the church at large, or even sometimes here, of course, of which we're a part of, we're creating a cultural crisis by ignoring our God-given kingdom mandate. Are you hearing what I'm saying here? What if instead we view what's happening within our cultural moment as an opportunity rather than an obstacle? And he goes on to say this, and this is absolutely profound and with great conviction. He says, we must examine the possibilities of renewal through God's unlimited power rather than through the limitations of a post-Christian framework which views the world through a narrow and simplistic materialistic lens triumphantly expecting the demise of religion and the inevitable victory of Western values. In other words, we're in danger, you guys. We are in danger as his church of making of conceding a battle that has already been won. We are in danger of conceding that which he has already taken hold of, a battle of which we are on the winning side of. This is what he's saying. Because we have a low view of the power of God and the power of the gospel at times, in the light of and in the face of, again, this looming culture of which we live. We need to flip or reorient our expectation and our faith. To let God be God and to believe in the power of the gospel as we've taught through the gospel of Matthew. To reach all people by the power of Jesus Christ. Not by our charisma, not by our eloquence, not by our convincing words, not even solely by our witness of our visible life. But it's by the power of the spoken word of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything that we just celebrated over these last four weeks. The incarnation, but not just the incarnation. God among us, establishing his kingdom. 
injecting us, his church, with his power by his Holy Spirit. Ascending in authority where he's seated in the right hand of the Father. And then commissioning us as vice regents on this earth to continue in the ministry of which he began. That's what we just celebrated. And here we stand today, December 29th, 2019, at this space in between Advents. What is our response, you guys? What will our response be? Will we perpetuate what seems to be a crisis in this world, or will we stand in faith, in expectation of who God is and what God wants to do, and take a hold of that both for ourselves and for our families, but bringing it into this faith community, standing hand in hand and saying, yes, this is our commission. This is what we have been called to do. Let's do it because we've been given the power to do so. It's time for the church, for this church, in light of the coming year, to step into a new realm of faith and belief in our all-powerful God. Can you agree with me in that? Let's agree with that. Let's believe in that. Let's not just do this. I know that you mean it, but let's really go home and let's think about what this means. And let's make 2020 just an earth-shaking year for, for this, this capital city. Not this church capital city, but this capital city of Sacramento. So with this, what outward qualities do these four advental truths, these four advental characteristics produce when they've taken effect upon our inward hearts that they attest to and they exemplify the present power of God's established kingdom in our lives. That's what I want to look at today. And I don't think this, isn't a def- this is not a definitive list. These are just a few things that I believe that we can expect to live in and to walk in which have an outward movement which further this mission of what I've just been talking about of bringing the gospel to the city of Sacramento. So what is the fruit of Advent? The first week we looked at joy. What I want to do here too is I, want to, I think that it's helpful sometimes to identify the false gospel or the false narrative and thus hold up the counterfeit in light of what is authentic. And so I want to identify in that as well. So we were pursuing what is true joy, right? We pursued the understanding of what does it mean to have this joy that is ours in Christ Jesus. And what does the world say is joy? What do they hold as the standard of joy? And how do we identify that error and thereby bring what is authentic and what is true in light of that? Again, truth is best seen when it's held against a backdrop of darkness or error. So joy, the false narrative of the world is that joy's true meaning and expression is tied deeply to the affections of the human heart. Rick spoke on this that very first week, that it's tied deeply to the affections of the human heart. That is the world's standard of joy. Therefore, it's our feelings that serve our understanding and not the other way around. It's not right thinking that, we're, that results in right action, but it's, it's understanding or it's truth here that then affects this, which then affects how we live. It's flip-flopped. The joy that's found and not even promised, right? The joy that's found in the world is movable. It can be fleeting. It's lost through circumstances in life, right? 
It's not secured or fixed to anything at all. But we know, of course, the joy of the Christian life, as we heard, is that it's fixed firmly in the finished Trinitarian work of God. The Father's plan, completed by the Son, empowered by the Spirit, secured by the Spirit, guaranteed by the Spirit, solely outside of the work of our own ability in our human hands. It's God. It's all God for the glory of God, completed by God. So where the earthly joy can waver and even trip up true joy, a kingdom joy finds its surety and stability in our God, in our Lord. So a fruit is this, the first outward characteristic that joy produces, I believe, or one of them is strength. An outward characteristic that joy produces is strength. Nehemiah 8.10, you know this verse probably well when I read it. He says this, Then he said to them, Go your own way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength, Nehemiah says. Here Nehemiah is speaking to a people who were weakened by war, weakened by insecurities, and needed no reminder of their fragility. But he says to them that their strength lies not in their own abilities, but in the Lord himself, in that it came from the Lord. The source of their strength was the joy that the Lord found in his people and that they in return find in him. Do you hear what I'm saying? Let's not be distracted by people getting up and walking around. The strength that they find is the joy that the Lord has in them. You guys, let's find this for ourselves. The joy, the delight, the pleasure that the Lord Jesus takes in each and every one of us who are the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. And our response is joy in Him. And that joy produces stability. It produces ability. It produces strength. The joy of the Lord is imparted to His people as a byproduct of being found in Him and of Him. His joy is our strength. The Lord's joy in us and over us confirms us as His own and therefore exhibits itself as a pervasive stability in spite of circumstances and feelings. Hello. In spite of circumstances and feelings. How easy it is to be driven by how we feel. But as we know, the Christian life is not about what we feel, but what about is what is a, what is it? But what is revealed? But about what is revealed. You know what I'm trying to say? Joy breeds strength because it sees beyond the immediate and it reminds itself of what is. It sees beyond the present circumstances and it reminds itself of what is. We've talked before, what does it say? David forlorn, David discouraged. His men ravaged, his people, his wives, children, gone, taken. What does it say that David encouraged himself in the Lord? It sees beyond the present circumstance 
roots itself deeply in the character and in the person of who God has revealed himself to be. And somehow we don't know how, and I think that's by God's design, lest we become methodical in our thinking. It just says that David encouraged himself in the Lord. We too must find our strength in the Lord beyond our present circumstance. The second characteristic here that I want to list today that joy produces is an ability then to overcome. Strength produces steadfastness. Steadfastness enables perseverance, an ability to overcome. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says this, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, there's the aim, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and it says this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We have in Jesus an example of such a joy that no obstacle was insurmountable. Jesus was the, is it archetype? Yes. Jesus was the archetype for our lives today. He was the template, of course the perfect, but we know that through the Holy Spirit, we too can experience the truth of what he said our lives would be like as revealed in Scripture. This is one of those things. We are more than overcomers through Christ Jesus. The joy that Jesus saw that day, the joy that was set before him was what? It wasn't the cross. In the cross in and of itself, it was the effect of the cross. The joy of Jesus Christ was you and it was me. He saw us that day at the cross. He saw those who have not yet come to faith that day. Let's not be so self-consumed that we think it's just about us. They are his joy. We are his joy. His strength was in what would be. His ability to overcome was in what would be so too are we called to the same type of living, to attest to true joy through our overcoming by the grace of God in us. And praise be to God, unlike what Jesus endured, and because of Jesus, our joy doesn't have to endure such a trial as he did on the cross. Thank God. Thank God. He did it for us. Yes, we'll die. Yes, we'll experience what he experienced in its finality. But, of course, we know even in this life, our joy is what is promised to us. It's the eternal. It's the life with Christ, which he has secured. See, and as such, this overcoming quality of living exhibits itself in other ways. It's seen in endurance. It's seen in patience. It's seen in steadfastness. There's ways for us to exhibit this truth. We ought to be looking for the fruit of these things in our life. Because of the joy that we have in and from him, we have strength to continue in all circumstances with joy because he has secured for us a promise, one of eternity. And this we exhibit to this watching world. This is what we exhibit to the watching world. We declare it as attainable. We say, you can have this joy. You can experience this strength. You too can live a life 
of perseverance and overcoming. It's attainable. It's, it's, it's touchable. It's experienceable. Able to be experienced. And set up against the counterfeit joy of the world is how we hold it. Inviting others and calling others into a life of the same because of Jesus Christ. What great news, isn't it? I hope you guys are encouraged this morning. I hope this is encouraging to you. So, fruit of joy in our life is strength and an ability to overcome. Then we spoke of love. What outward characteristic is produced because of love? The two that I want to point out today, I believe, are actually found together. The love that we have in us, the love that we have in us produces the quality of being selfless and sacrificial. Love breeds selflessness. Love breeds sacrifice. These two are different qualities that can easily be blurred, I think, at times. We can think of them as one and of the same. But both are clearly distinct. And I want to just draw upon Paul's letter to the Ephesians and what he says in Ephesians chapter 5. And you can turn there with me. It's good to keep our fingers exercised lest they atrophy and we forget where things are within the Word of God. If nothing else, even though I read it, still turn to it. Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 25 and 28, Paul's using the earthly example of the covenant of marriage. But listen, let's look for these. Look for these two qualities, selflessness and sacrifice. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 25, he says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Who loves his wife loves himself. See, the counterfeit love of the world is often presented as selfless. Often it is. It's presented as selfless in that its aim is another person or another object outside of oneself. So we think, oh, well, this is a selfless act. But I think it's often ultimately nothing more than a search for self-fulfillment. I love in order to be loved. Its end goal isn't really the object of which it's placed upon. It's the reciprocation that comes from the act unto itself. You understand what I mean by that? So again, it's I'm loving so that I can be loved. See, that's not the genuine. That's the counterfeit. But what is the truth? It's actually flipped. It's I am loved, therefore I can love. I know what love is because I have received love. And as we said last week, Romans chapter 5 says it's the love of God that's been poured out into our hearts. We love because we have been loved. First John 4.19, of course, we know is that we love him because he first loved us. See, this first love, this first love that we experience, then becomes the impetus for how we live with love outwardly. 
Let me ask you a question, husbands and wives. Husbands, do you love your wife because she loved you first? Or do you love her, do you love her because you were enamored by her? And what she does causes you to love her more. Isn't that not right? I mean, sometimes we do love because, you know, we want to be loved. But the nature of the relationship is really we love them in spite of, despite whatever it is that is said or and or done at that moment. This first love that we experience becomes the impetus for our outward living in love. It's the basis for our selflessness. Christ loved us first when we were unlovely. Christ died for us, man and woman, when we were sinful. When we were enemies of God, the Bible tells us that he might make us right and righteous. Therefore, Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ first loved. He doesn't say first, but that's the implication. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved. Christ loved us first. Therefore, we love in return first. And then he says this, and gave himself up for her. No comma there. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's a natural progression of selflessness into sacrifice. That's the pattern that we have. That's the pattern that we're called to. He loved her and gave himself, her being us, her being his church, his, his universal church. We are called to the same outward expression. Towards who? Towards everyone. Towards those who were the object of Christ's love, as I just said a moment ago. The entire world. Those whom Christ came for. Ephesians then says, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word. See, what Jesus accomplished in his sacrifice was fully effective. By that I mean it brought about the desired effect upon that which it was shown. The significance of a sacrifice isn't so much in what it is as much as what it accomplishes. It's not just the act of sacrifice, it's what it does. And of course, we know that to be true for our own lives, right? The perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ accomplished that which God set out to do in redeeming mankind and bringing mankind back into right standing by faith in Jesus Christ. It was fully effective. Therefore, here's the point. As Christ obeyers, we too have been called not only to enjoy the love that has been poured into our own hearts, but in turn to manifest that love in our own selfless acts of sacrifice unto another. And in so doing, that desired effect of people knowing that they are first loved would come to its fullness through God's grace and revelation. So that effectiveness doesn't, doesn't rely upon us, but we believe in faith for it. Do you understand what I'm saying? We don't always experience the full effectiveness of the love of God being poured out through us to others in that it doesn't always lead to a faith conversion. But in faith, we hope for it. In faith, we look for it. In faith, we expect it. 
And therefore, we continue to be outpourers of this first loved nature. Is this making sense? Okay. To this end, I would say, in the words of a famous 21st century songwriter, that love is a verb. There's a famous song titled Love is a Verb. To that end, I would say that is true. It's active. It's proactive. It's action-oriented. So, love, I believe, a fruit of love poured out in our own hearts is selflessness and sacrificial living. The third, we looked at peace. Like love, the counterfeit peace has within its crosshairs the goal of personal fulfillment, I believe. So many today live beneath a dark cloud of dissatisfaction with themselves. Therefore, the peace that the world holds out is the hope of the release of inner turmoil with oneself. That's the peace that the world presents. Find peace and find peace with yourself. And somehow this peace with yourself will result in peace with others that are around you. It begins here. That's what the world promises. And I would say this, hence the spike of Eastern mysticism, Eastern mysticism practices, such as yoga, it's everywhere, right? This ability to try to just, you know, I'm going to hone it all in right now. I'm going to get rid of all the junk that's outside of me. You know, I'm just going to namaste this right now for the next two hours, right? I, I was just, I was with some people. We had some neighbors over who, um, are not Christ followers by any stretch of the imagination a few weeks ago. And we sat at our kitchen table with uh, two sets of neighbors. And um, no, they, they're knowing of our faith, we were just having this kind of fluid conversation. And one of them at one point says, I really like Buddhism. She says, this, I really like the Buddhists. You know, it just struck me for a moment. The positive outlook that so many people outside of faith, not even spiritual in any way, have towards Buddhists, Hinduists, Taoists, it's because somehow it's this peace, that they're about establishing peace because they're just searching for peace, and therefore their actions are peaceful. Isn't that an interesting reality that we live in? But yet Christians, even though we seek the same peace, we offer it, we point to it, and we exemplify it. True peace, we're seen as hostile, narrow-minded, arrogant, archaic, you know, whatever you want to use as a description. It's fascinating. Outwardly, this worldly peace seeks the absence of conflict and a state of tranquility where no strife occurs. But however, again, I would say that where the world ends is where Jesus begins. He promises true peace, which is the shalom that goes to the root of man's inner and outer discontentedness. First and foremost, it's a peace with God through Jesus Christ. That inner turmoil that we experience, that we feel, in those moments of dissatisfaction is because we know genuinely deep down inside we're no good despite how hard we try over and over again we're faced with the insufficiency of our own moral ability and i think we all young and old can testify to the fact that most of the time when we want to do what's right or often when we want to do what's right we don't whether it's eating less speaking more kindly, being honest at work, whatever it is, 
big or small, we are constantly faced with our insufficiency as human beings. It's because deep inside we don't truly know peace. There is a low level of agitation that lives within our hearts and minds outside of Christ. But we who are in Christ, we're all going, yeah, but I know I'm lame. But man, Christ, Jesus is so much better than all of my lameness. Isn't he? So we do the things sometimes that we don't want to do, but yet the grace of God picks us up and says, no, you know what? You are the righteousness of God. When I see you, I see Jesus Christ. When I see you, I see the finished work of the cross. So stand. Stand in grace. Stand in faith. Repent. Turn. And let's do this again. Let's try again. So the peace that is ours through Jesus is true peace. First and foremost, it's a peace with God through Jesus Christ. This peace then extends, and Dean spoke of this really well two weeks ago, this, this peace extends horizontally. It extends this way. I'm right this way, so therefore, you know what? We're right this way. It's extended between ourselves and our fellow man, and it's extended this way too, right? Not just between believers, but this way it can be experienced as well, or at least we ought to be seeking it. See, both of these, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, he says to remember that at one time we were all separated from Christ, that we were all alienated, that we were all strangers of the covenants of promise, Paul says. But then he says this, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, here the inner peace is established. You were brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, it says in Ephesians chapter 2, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And we've studied this before, and we know that he's speaking to Jew and Greeks, but we can extend this because of the severity context, uh, the, the, uh, the separation, the cultural separation between Jews and Greeks at that time was significant. And so we know we can see this text and the reconciliatory nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's act between the lives of us, our fellow man. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. There's the outward horizontal peace that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. And that's what we invite people into. Is this, are you following me? Okay. I think you are, but I just, I'm moving fast and I'm saying a lot. And sometimes when I get passionate about things, I say things I don't mean. So I mean what I've been saying, though. True peace, therefore, seeks two characteristics of an outward living it seeks harmony and it seeks equality. Ooh, listen, ooh, those are interesting words. Let's not be convoluted, though, in what I mean by that. See, I believe that as believers, the equality that has been established by Christ, for after all, we were once first considered aliens and strangers, right? Aliens and sinners. But we now have equal access to Christ's ransom. All of mankind has equal access because Christ died for all. We have equal access. From this, births a harmony that's only attainable through Jesus Christ. The peace that we have ought to extend 
harmony to one another on the basis that all are equal in deserving of such a gift. In addition, it removes from us the impending sense of judgment and self-condemnation because peace with God should lead to peace within ourselves. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul says in Romans, right? We all were aliens. We all were unworthy, but yet Christ died for us. That ought to create humility in our own hearts. Not a sense of elitism, not a sense of, man, I've got this figured out. You ought to get your stuff together and figure it out too. No, I mean, you know this, you guys. We say, man, this is what God did for me through Jesus. Come and enjoy the same. I was just like you. I was both equal in my depravity and equal in my opportunity in that Christ died for all. Yet by the grace of God, he called me and he chose me. Let me tell you about this equality that you have. I'm telling you, this text for me, and we, and we talked about this last year when we did our study through this summer series, but this text for me has been such a resounding truth in face of the, of the, the racial segregation, discrimination that this city and nation still experiences to this day. Man, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. Whether it's cultural, whether it's racial, whatever it is, whether it's economic status, that dividing wall has been broken down. We are all equally sinners, and we are all equally able to be saved through Christ Jesus. What great news that is. And so that peace that we have, that equality that we have, it ought to breed a harmony in that all are equal and deserving, as I said, of such a gift. So therefore, while perfect harmony will never fully exist, not in this lifetime because of sin's effects upon us, sin's effects upon this earth, we should seek to establish microcosms of the perfect peace that will one day be. We can seek to establish these, these bubbles of peace and extend them as our spheres extend into our neighborhoods and into our cities. And we invite people into our homes, which are homes of peace in homes of the grace of, in homes of, the grace of God. Again, it's not perfect. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying while turmoil will always exist, let's seek to establish bases of peace and bases of equality and bases of harmony where discord amongst one another, which is what this ought to be, doesn't exist and isn't pervasive, right? So let me just wrap this up and with, give you the last bit here quickly. Last week, I spoke on hope. Whether it's success, personal, familial, well-being, the power of positive confession, general stability, or any other life goal that the world holds as ultimate, each will ultimately fall short because they're not rooted in something that is immovable, unchanging, and unfailing. And I spoke about this last week. Hope is only hope because it's fixed in something outside of ourself, something that is finished and true and unchangeable. Thank God for that. That is true hope. But the counterfeit hope wants you to believe that those are, in fact, ends in and of themselves. When all in when all reality, we don't have to live for very long to experience that they're not. And I said this last week, 
Hold any of those things that you might hold out as hope in your own life from time to time and just look at it honestly for a moment and you can acknowledge, man, you know what? This season is great right now. Whatever it is, you know, like my business is doing really good, but I can't put my hope in that ultimately because that could fail. Or, you know, like this relationship that I've got right now, man, it's really just sustaining me and supporting me, but sinfulness in our own hearts or in the hearts of the other can come and wedge itself in. You know what I'm saying? That's not to breed, you know, hopelessness. It's just to be honest with ourselves and just say, man, none of these things ultimately bring hope because they can't sustain themselves. Twice in Romans, Paul tells them that their hope produces a cadence to life. Firstly, in Romans 8, hope is said to produce patience, waiting for what we do not yet see. And then again in chapter 12, Paul says that our rejoicing in hope is the basis for patience in trial and constancy in prayer. Hope produces patience and hope produces constancy. An authentic hope that comes from God is strong in both of these areas. The primary reason being is that they're fixed in what is not yet as though it were. Right? We hope for what will one day be, not just, oh man, I really hope that Jesus returns and he glorifies my sinful body. No, we know, man, that is happening. It's just a matter of when. So everything I do or, now, or feel now or think about myself now is fixed firmly in Jesus Christ's return. That's where our hope lies. This is an authentic hope that comes from God being strong in both of these areas for us. The primary reason is that they're fixed in Him. Jesus' kingdom, in conjunction with His Holy Spirit, is a deposit of what will one day be perfectly realized. That's where we hope. We experience it now and believe in its fullness and fulfillment of what will one day be. So our goal now, the outward expression of this, you guys, listen to me as I finish here, is to exemplify both patience and constancy in the face of trials. And as I said last week, hope is often exercised as a muscle in the face of adversity. If we don't use it, it atrophies. So patience and constancy, we can expect the same. They're often worked out for us through trial. But this is where they shine the brightest. To exemplify them in the face of uncertainty, dissatisfaction, a wavering of earthly promises that come and go as the tides. See, as Christ ex exemplifiers and Christ amplifiers, we invite others into knowing true hope as we live out our faith with patience and constancy in front of them. And there, I tell you, and we've said this before too, how many times people have said, gosh, like, what's different about your marriage with Shannon? Like, yeah, we argue, and yeah, we've got our, our moments, you know, but it's like, when you look at our relationship over the last 18 years, it's like we see this pattern of stability, of perseverance, of constancy, and of course we know that's the grace of God in our relationships. And so there is a profound example that we have as we live this out to the watching world, as you know. See, this is what the world needs from the church, you guys. These things, this strength, this sense of overcoming, 
selflessness, sacrificial living, equality, harmony, patience, constancy. The world cries for these things. That's why the counterfeit is so real and so apparent and so vibrant in our faces each and every day because the world is, is dying to really fully experience these things. And by the world, we mean the people, right? It's about people. It's about hearts and minds of men and women, individuals. That's the wilderness. That's the mission field. That's where the gospel is proclaimed into, one at a time. The world needs to see a people unwavering and overcoming in adversity, living selflessly and sacrificially out of love for God's creation made in His image. Promoting and extending harmony through the realization that we are all equal sinners and therefore worthy of His grace as we patiently await His return, the glorification of our mortal bodies and the renewing of all creation. This is the light that we are to the world to come back to Matthew 5. This is the light that we're called to shine. This is the light that Jesus was and this is the ministry that we continue in today. This is the city that's set atop a hill for many to find refuge within. This is what it looks like to understand our times and to live out our kingdom mandate to a dark and needy world, to the praise and the glory of Jesus Christ. May Jesus grant us the grace and the faith to live in such a way. And I just want to remind you, and again, let me just say this. What if this secular moment was only a crisis if we ignore God's call for renewal? Can we find and muster the faith in our own hearts to live in the face of this and to believe that it's only a crisis if we don't act according to the commissioning that we've been given? Would you stand with me, please? Let's pray. And Dean, I'll just hand it over to you and I'm done, bro, and you can close us up. Lord God, I've said a lot this morning. I have spoken many words, but Lord God, I trust in you today. We trust in you today to be about the work, Lord, of, of working in our own hearts that's needed to live in such a way. I pray, Father, for an increased measure of faith as we exit this year and we step into the new. Lord, greater expectation, greater faith for what you um, want to do, Lord God. Not that we need to see something new because, Lord God, you've shown us through your word that it's about the gospel. And we know what we are to be about, Lord. Give us the faith to walk in it day in and day out, moment by moment by moment as the opportunities arise. Lord, would you help us in this? Lord, we pray that your glory would be our primary focus and objective. As we walk out of these doors and as we go through our weekly lives, Lord God, that we would be about glorifying your name, making much of who you are, speaking of how you are greater and better than all the things that this world has to offer. Would you do this for us, Lord God, we pray. We believe you. We believe in what your word says is true, Lord. We love you. In the name of Jesus, we say together, amen.